text today is Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would open our ears to understand and apply it to our hearts and minds. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Philippians is known as an epistle of joy. The word joy or rejoice is used 16 times in this tiny little book. There are 104 verses, and yet at least 16 times joy or rejoice occurs. Now, that's interesting, but what's really remarkable is that the Philippians were undergoing persecution when this was written to them. Paul was imprisoned, and it wasn't just this uh, type of imprisonment where he got to walk around his apartment and write letters and stuff. He was in chains, so he was chained up in prison. And he also had people that were outside of his prison that were preaching Christ trying to get him into greater trouble because they didn't like him. They were willing to preach the gospel just on the hope that he would get into greater trouble, maybe even be killed, executed. And yet it's in the context of this situation, the people he's writing to are being persecuted, he's being persecuted, that he writes the epistle of joy. So that's why this is remarkable. He's already proclaimed by the time we've gotten here to 4-4, he's already uh, proclaimed joy or rejoice 13 times, and then he says it this 14th time. And then he says it this 15th time. Again, I say rejoice. It's no mistake. He's repeating it and repeating it and repeating it until he hopefully breaks through the hardness of head or heart of the people he's writing to. That's sometimes required. Um, I know some people in this congregation, and I mean I know because I've talked to you about it, I know you don't like repetition. You don't see it as being necessary. You see it as being kind of like a waste of your time or even annoying. Yet, God uses it at times. And let me share two ways in which he has used this to transform our world. The first is in the salvation of Augustine. Augustine is an unbeliever. He's a man who has a concubine. He's a man who has had a child with that concubine. All he seeks out of life is pleasure. Yet his mother is a believer. His mother, Monica, is a believer. And he's in her house one day, and he's sitting in a chair, and her Bible is sitting on the table next to him. And he hears a voice from outside, a young girl's voice, saying, pick up and read, pick up and read. Over and over and over again. Pick up and read, pick up and read, pick up and read. And so finally, he's not altogether atheistic. He's somewhat believing in omens at this point. So he's just thinking, well, this is too weird. And he keeps seeing this book here. So he picks it up, instantly saved. Picks it up, starts reading, and God converts him. And Augustine, I mean, you know, he transformed the world. He ruled as the theologian of the church for a thousand years. And so God had used simple repetition to reach him. 
The second one is even more fun. This is Charles Spurgeon. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Charles Spurgeon's uh, conversion experience, but he was a teenager, and he was in his home, and he was an unbeliever. And yet, I think through prodding in his family, because some of his family did believe, he went down the street to a Methodist church. It was called a Primitive Methodist Church. And it was just very close. It was like the closest church to where he was. And he went down there one very, very snowy Sunday morning. And the minister didn't show up because of the snow. He couldn't get into town. So one of probably a deacon or an elder in the church went up to the front to share the word. And he shared from Isaiah 45:22, Look unto me and be saved, ye ends of all the earth. And this man proceeded to speak like this. And he said he was very uncouth very unskilled. As a matter of fact, he says this about him. It is well that preachers be instructed, for this man was really stupid. (laughs) I mean, you know, he didn't mean it in a derogatory way. He meant it in a factual way. This man didn't know anything. And it kind of almost hurt Spurgeon to admit this, I think, in a way, human way, but in a God-honoring way, he loved it. But this is what this man went on. This was his sermon. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I've risen again. Look unto me. I ascended into heaven. And he's doing this with this poor English. And that's all he did for like 10 minutes. He'd just say, look unto me, and then say some sentence that popped into his head. And yet, after 10 or 12 minutes of this, and Spurgeon is probably being driven crazy because he's, an intellect. Even at this age, he's a great intellect. And yet, then he looked right at Spurgeon. He said there were like a dozen people in this church sanctuary. And he looks right at Spurgeon. He says, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon said, and actually Phil in the introduction shared the conversion experience that A.W. Tozer shared. And it was a beautiful illustration of this. Spurgeon said instantly he was saved. In an instant, he saw his sins, and yet he saw Christ's salvation. And it just filled him with this love that Phil explained. So in an instant, this young teenager who was extremely bright, but yet on a road of disobedience to God, hears this horrible sermon filled with repetition from this deacon and he said that he was like a tradesman he was like a tailor or a tinker or something but he just hears these words and they're drilled into his head and god uses this so see god uses repetition i know some of you don't like repetition i myself benefit i'm dense perhaps and for me repetition is very helpful but yet God uses it to transform people's lives. And the Philippians needed to have this word, this concept drilled into them. Joy, rejoice, joy, rejoice. They're not wanting to do this. It's against what everything is going on in their world. And yet Paul is telling them, this is what you must do. In order to go where you want to go with God, you must do this. And he also says, rejoice in the Lord always. We have three thoughts here. Rejoice in the Lord always. In the Lord. All lasting joy, all real joy must be in the Lord. Every other joy you experience is temporal. 
it will fade away so quickly. And yet only joy that is of God has lasting value, has lasting impact in your life. It transforms you. It changes you. And we're to do it always, always. He he is without exception. Whatever circumstance you come into in this world, you should be able to experience joy and you should be able to rejoice in whatever it is. You're not rejoicing in these bad circumstances. You're rejoicing in the fact that you are God's and you are serving him. You're doing what you were called to do. What you were designed to do, you're doing it. The next phrase says this. Let your gentleness be known to all men. Now, this is where there is kind of a weakness in literal translations of the Bible. Because when you literally translate the Bible, you want a word to go in the place of that other word. Unfortunately, in English, there is no word that can take the place of that Greek word. And so if you look at all the versions of the Bible that you have in your house, you'll see that they use many, many different words for this. Let your gentleness be known to all men. That word gentleness is very hard to describe in English. You you need to use many, many words, many concepts. And so what I'm going to do is introduce several of them. Two from scripture, uh, kind of just uh, generally, and then I'll read one excerpt from James that conveys to you what is meant. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, writes to them, and he says, you people are taking one another into the uh, secular courts. This ought not be done. You should rather be wronged than take your brother to court. And when he's speaking of this, the behavior that he wants them to exhibit is this behavior, this gentleness. It's this willingness to be wronged. In other words, for many of us, we're like we're like on a spectrum. We're like, well, you know, I don't want to cheat people. I don't want to cheat people, but I don't want to be cheated either. And so we're somewhere in here. It reminds me of the story that Phil shared the other week about the pastor that said, give me your wallet and get out. You know, he's so concerned about having been cheated that he ends up cheating this guy and feeling horrible about it. And so our tolerance for being cheated, if, if this is zero, our tolerance is nothing. And here is our tolerance is everything. What Paul is saying is your tolerance should be here, maxed out. You should be tolerant of people cheating you to the degree that you will never, ever cheat anybody else. And so it reminds me of a phrase that I'd heard once about marriage. Marriage is a 60-40 relationship, you know. I'll do my 60. If only she'll do her 40, we'll do a good job here. It's, it's poking fun at the fact that everybody thinks they know where the 50 is. Everybody thinks they know where fairness is. But everybody tends to shade the edges of that to their favor at times. Not all the time, but enough to where you make people irritated. And then you're at 49, 49, 48, 48, 45, 45, zero, zero. I hate you. I don't want to spend any time with you. That's how relationships are. So we must go beyond that. We must expand our spectrum to not want to ever wrong people and to frankly tolerate being wronged. Instead, just let it go. Give it to God. You know, God will make all things right in the end. That's what our ultimate faith is in. So, the, uh, the next one is in Timothy, where he uh, tells Timothy that the man of God must be gentle, not quarrelsome. Gentle and not quarrelsome. That character that is being pointed out is the character that's in question here. That's what we are to be as Christians. 
the same thing. And now let me read to you in James. It's uh, James 3, and I'll read uh, 13 to 17. If only I knew where James was. Just kidding. Verses 13 to 17. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's the character that, that Paul is saying we must exhibit. It's that character. James describes it. He captures the essence of it. And Paul is commanding us, by virtue of telling us we need to behave this way, we are commanded to leave ourselves vulnerable. We are the Christians. When we're dealing with anybody, whether fellow Christians or non-Christians, we're the ones that need to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. That's what God wants from us because he says he will protect us. And it's right here in the text. The next phrase, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Some people say that's like you better watch out. You know, the Lord is at hand. You know, he's ready to whop you. I don't really think that's the case, uh, nor did Calvin. I loved Calvin's exposition of this text. He uh, builds up to it like this. He states a couple of propositions that he'd heard concerning this phrase. The rage of the wicked is the more inflamed in proportion to our mildness. And I think we've all seen this. Our meekness in a situation can result in the wicked becoming even more irate. Because it's irrational, it's demonic. That's why it happens. The more we are prepared to endure, the more emboldened they are to attack. Again, this is just a statement of fact. Now, as humans, we want to defend ourselves. As humans, we want to not leave ourselves vulnerable in this way. But this is what people then say that are trying to say, yes, that's the way a Christian should behave. We must howl when among wolves. In other words, get away from me. You know, we have to, we have to put those people back a step or two. Allow them to see that we've got teeth too and we're willing to use them. Those who act like sheep will be devoured by wolves. Again, another justification for why Christians should kind of fight using the world's tactics. But Calvin's response was to point at this phrase and say, this is exactly what Paul is hinting at. He says, the Lord is at hand. He means the Lord is there to defend you. The Lord is there to protect you. The Lord is there to prevent this from going too far. Do you trust him? Do you trust him to protect you? Or will you want to insist on protecting yourself? That's the challenge we face. Do we have faith in God? Do we have faith in God that he will defend us? God's power alone can overcome evil. We know this, but we just don't have faith that God will exercise it in this situation. I'm going to do it myself. So this phrase, the Lord is at hand, I think teaches us patience. 
uh, it teaches us faith in God. Calvin said, ignorance of the providence of God is the cause of all impatience. In other words, we get impatient when we really aren't exercising a full understanding of who God is and what he's doing in our lives. Think about the Old Testament example, though. I believe it applies here. God told the Israelites to assemble every year in Jerusalem. He said, do this. I will defend your land. Because when they all leave, all the men of Israel migrate to Jerusalem. They're leaving their land open to attack, open to pillage and plunder. And yet God tells them, you do this. I'm commanding you to do this, and I will defend your land. Trust me in this. And I think it's the same phrase right here. It's the same concept. God says, trust me. This is what Calvin also wrote on this. We are not exposed either to the rashness of fortune or to the caprice of the wicked, but are under the regulation of God's fatherly care. Whatever situation God has taken you into, you must rely upon God to get you out of. Now, we can screw up and get ourselves into stupid situations by going against God's will for our lives. It reminds me of Jonathan Gofor's wife, who refused to go with him on one of his mission trips because she'd already lost two children. And he pled with her to go with him. He said, this is God's will for you. She would not go. She had the baby. She wouldn't go. Baby died anyway. So eventually she said, okay, well, God's going to take these babies away from me. Even if I, you know, try to keep them safe, then obviously I should do the right thing and just go with you. So he overcame. God overcame her unwillingness to be faithful by taking the baby. So now, the next verse begins, be anxious for nothing. Now, this is where the title of the sermon came, Worry Warriors. I believe far more of us are worry warriors than prayer warriors. It's just the time we live in. We're just so accustomed to getting what we want without any work on our part. We are just lazy, 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 lazy. And I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. But I think you're a lot like me. Maybe you're not but I'm afraid you might be. My wife uh, had a, a teacher at the Y that she really liked many, many years ago, and uh, our phrase for this woman was bouncy woman. It's, so it's the, her name is bouncy woman. But bouncy woman would tell stories while she's teaching these classes, and one of the stories that she told was, you know, I know why my husband doesn't worry, because I do enough worrying for both of us. And it's right, it's true. Uh, you've heard of the term designated driver. You know, you go out on a night on the town and one person is supposed to stay sober so that they could get everybody home safely. I think in most every home we have a designated worrier. There's one person that we know will worry. They'll take care of everything. You know, they're the responsible one. Let them do it. In, in my home, that's my wife. In many homes, I think it's our wives. Now, this is to kind of mix up worry with responsibility. And I will address this in a second here. But we are not to worry. But that doesn't mean we're not to be unconcerned about things. We're not to be flippant about things. We're not to act irresponsibly. So see, we men might say, I don't worry, but that really means I don't do anything. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't worry about that. Well, that means I don't do anything at home. Well, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you men are free to just not do anything. And you consider that being true to the Bible. No, you just have to not fret and stew, and stamp at night, that type of stuff. And all of us have done this. All of us worry. We just worry about different things at different times. We have different levels, but yet we're all tending to worry. Now, 
In response to my question here, I want you all to talk. I know that's unusual, but I want you to say the answer. What are we to be anxious for? Nothing. Nothing. What are we to worry about? What are we to be anxious for? What are we to worry about? What's in your head right now? Ah, I got you. See, you have to think. You have to listen to me, say the right thing, but yeah, I got you all pretty much. Okay. Now, we're not to worry. We're not to be anxious. That's what the text says. Now, how do we do that? We can do it. God commands it, and therefore, he will empower us to do it. So we go to the further part of verse 6. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is the answer. This is the answer to the question. Obeying this works a miracle in our lives. Obeying this simple guidance of Paul works a miracle in our lives because the peace that comes to us is supernatural. It's not peace like the world gives peace. It's not peace like we have in many other situations. This is peace that bubbles up from within you. Let's talk about this. Anxiety will come. It is just like any other temptation. The question is, what will you do about it? Many times when we're tempted, we give in, right? We give in to the temptation. We do what it is the devil wants us to do. And yet we have to recognize that that's wrong. So we repent of it. We want to do better next time. The same is true with worry. When you find yourself worrying, you need to just recognize it as sin and then apply God's remedy. And God's remedy is, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In 1 Peter, he says, you should cast all your cares upon God, for he cares for you. God's love for us is so great that we don't tap a piece of it, really. We just don't go to him for what we need. And God instructs us very simply what we're to do to get what we want, what we truly want on this earth. And yet we refuse to do it because that's God's way. Most of us have some other way that we're more comfortable with. There is an acronym I learned long ago that I really like. It's called PUSH. Pray until something happens. Now, when I first uh, memorized that, heard it long, long ago, I thought, okay, push until something happens. That means I have a prayer list, and I pray through that prayer list, and I keep writing notes, and I'm praying about it day after day after day until something happens. Something happens relative to that request. That's partly true. But I don't really think that's what prayer is about. The something that you're waiting to happen is peace in your heart. That's what you're seeking when you pray. We have many requests we make of God. It doesn't mean that we'll get those things answered today or ever. But you will get peace by having cast it into God's care. He will let you be peaceful now about the results, whatever they are. You might get what you want. You might not get what you want. You might just continue to pray. We know this. We've experienced this. And sometimes it discourages us from continuing to pray. We get tired of carrying it over in our prayer list from day to day. So we just 
drop them off, like dead leaves off a tree. Was that answered? I don't really know. I'd have to go back and research it. I don't know. You know, it's just life is too busy. I'm too, it's too complicated. So we kind of cut God some slack, I think. That's how we view it. We're just letting God go. Oh, we're not holding him accountable to that prayer. Well, that's silly, right? I mean, we don't need to cut God any slack. We're cutting ourselves slack. That's what we're doing when we start dropping that thing off the list. We really should persist in prayer with God. He wants us to. The importunate widow story is all about us being persistent in our prayer life with God. Now, true, we might ask for crazy things in prayer. I want a Rolls Royce next week, God. You know, well, you're not going to get it. You know, that's just not the way God is going to answer your prayers. We know this. But we might not ask prayers that are quite as crazy, and yet we kind of expect answers to those. So we just have to make sure that as we're praying, we're allowing God to adjust our expectations. We're allowing God to adjust what we want. Is what you want right? It should be, but it might not be. So you have to, you have to worry about that. You have, to, you have to worry through that. Okay. With thanksgiving. In everything by prayer and supplication, and yet Paul doesn't leave us out of the loop here. With thanksgiving. We are not very thankful as a people. We are very, very blessed as a people, but we are not very thankful. I remember when we drove to Peoria a few years ago, uh, Gary gave us, uh, brought a sermon, and it was all on thankfulness, and it was an amazing sermon. I mean, it was preached by a guy who sounded like he was right out of the 1950s or something. I forget his name, but it was like a 79-minute sermon. So, you know, he'd fit right in here. But, uh, but it, was, it was very, very good on thankfulness, just really pointing out to us how thankless we are as a people. And we must be thankful. God has given us so much, but we are still so unhappy and so discontented from day to day, week to week, aren't we? I mean, many of us are. We just don't really have that joy that we want to have. God promises it, but we don't have it. Why? Uh, a movie review. Um, in Blindside, a, a couple months ago, uh, Sandra Bullock is in the store and she's teaching this this young homeless guy how to shop. You know, I mean, this is her forte. So she takes him to the store, says, "Have you ever shopped?" "No." "Well, you have to absolutely love it here, because you'll never like it any more than you like it in the store." Isn't that interesting? That's a beautiful picture of all that the world has to give you. You'll only love it as much as the moment prior to you actually having it. And once you have it, your joy and your fulfillment in it diminishes steadily. That's true. It's really true. And I just love having just that little snippet of just such deep truth conveyed in a way like that in that movie. Because movies are like that. They're just filled with good truths that that the average person might not really understand, might not relate to, because they're not Christians, and they really can't see how deep meaning that has in our lives. In a few verses later in our text here, Paul says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And Ron just mentioned that this morning. Years ago, I got an email from Jonathan Kaiser, and his email address was contentman. And I thought, content man, what is Jonathan so proud about his content? What is this content he's so proud about? And and I tell you, I emailed him probably twice before I realized it was content man. It wasn't content man. 
And, it, 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 and it's kind of funny. After that, I, th- I felt foolish. I thought, oh, this has meaning. This is cool. But before that, I thought, I was almost tempted. John, what are you talking about? What, are you, what is this content that you're so proud of? <laughs> but that's what we want to be. We want to be content people, content men and women. And God tells us exactly how we can have it in this text. That's why this text is such a favorite. Thankfulness teaches us contentment. In Proverbs 30, verse 15, we read, The leech has two daughters. Give and give. This is the opposite of being content. The leech has two daughters. Give and give. That's what so many people that we run into are like. Nothing placates them. Nothing pleases them. Whatever you give them today, they'll want 10 times more tomorrow. What is the phrase? Give them an inch and they'll take a mile. That's just the world we live in. Me, me, me. Want, want, want. I'll use it up on my lusts and then I'll come back for more. And we have a government that obviously can't understand that that's how the world works. And so they're trying to satisfy these wants and it will never work. But we are promised by God Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I have a question for you. This is almost like a riddle because, you know, sometimes I just have to think these things through. They don't make sense at first. If Paul was so content, why did he pray? What does a content person have to pray for? Is it that content people don't need to pray? Are they so content that, eh, whatever, you know, but that see is fatalism being content and praying is what God wants us to do. So we have to figure it out. Being content means that you have what you absolutely need. Yet you want many things. You want to see God glorified. You want to see people saved. You want to see justice prevail in evil situations. You want all these things. So why is it that God commands us to be content in the absence of having that? Doesn't it not make sense to you? It doesn't. Boy, that's too many negatives. Okay. Uh, It doesn't make sense to me at times when I think about it like that. But see, it's because it's outside of your control. You don't have control over that. You must rely upon God. And once you've given it to God, you're done. Your job is done. You can be content now. See, we can be, we can be such simple people, such simply content people, but we don't want it to be in God's hands. We want to have it in our hands because we want control over it. We want to be God. That's why we are not content Because we don't want to give it to God. We want what we want. I want to get even with that person for having done what he did to me. And I know if I go to God, he'll make me give it to him. And I don't want to. I want to hold that grudge in. I want to keep it and savor it. That's wickedness. That's evil. We know that. Oh, but we want it, don't we? So see, that's what this text is all about. Recognizing this. This is sin. It's sin in us, trying to justify itself in a thousand different ways. But it's sin. And until you acknowledge it as sin, you won't let it go. You won't give it to God. You want what you want. Now, the grace or the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and minds. The peace of God. We need to talk about what this is. What is the peace of God? Um, You're probably familiar with the concept of attributes of God. We have uh, classes of these that we typically refer to as communicable and incommunicable. Sounds like disease, but, you know, in theology, you kind of get past that. But if you haven't studied them from a theological perspective, maybe that's where you are right now. Incommunicable attributes are typically referred to as the omnis. God is omniscient. He knows everything. God is omnipotent. He has all power. He can do anything. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. And I was listening to a Wayne Grudem tape recently, and he pointed out that really we have those. We do. Omniscient. God knows everything. Well, we know a little bit. Omnipotent. God is all powerful. Well, we have a little power. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Well, we're somewhere, right? We're here. So see, we are even in those incommunicable aspects, like God in this tiny, tiny little way. And we can grow in those incommunicable attributes. We can learn more. We can become more powerful, more influential in the world. We can have a greater presence with people. You know, write them letters, write books, all that type of stuff. We can grow in these ways that are typically regarded as incommunicable. And then we have the ones that are communicable that we typically think of being made in the image of God. We experience this love and mercy and justice and jealousy, all of these things that make us like God. He's made us in his image. And so we have all these characteristics. There are like 30 of them. There are quite a lot. And yet we're like God in these. Well, peace, the peace of God isn't just an ephemeral thing. It's an attribute of God that he can give you, that you can grow in, that he can bless you with, that can then guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So see, don't think of it as just like something that that can come and go. No, God can build this in you. God can place this in you, and it comes out. That's why when it says that we're to behave like this to all people, normally we don't. Normally we act like this way with this person and this way with this other person. We're not like God in that regard. God acts the same way with all the people. He's the same who he is. He's who he is. All of his attributes are always being reflected perfectly. But we're not like that. This is what uh, John Frame wrote in The Doctrine of God. Peace among men is a reflection of God's own nature. It is a divine attribute. God is completely at peace with himself. We often experience struggles between contradictory impulses within us. God, on the contrary, is completely in harmony with himself. God is always at peace. In the Bible, it says God is a God of war. That's true, but God is always at peace. Isn't it funny? I mean, you know, God is perfect in all of these attributes, and so he perfectly reflects them all the time. It's impossible for us to understand because we are so finite. We are so mercurial in how we exhibit our behavior. But yet, this peace of God, this supernatural peace of God that we can get when we pray can come to us, and it will guard us from what? What will it guard us from? What does it need to guard us from? Who's our enemy? Evil, Satan, demons, temptations, all these things God's peace, if it's in us, can guard us from. 
but we want it. We must want it. We must go after it to get it. And we don't always do that, do we? We're lazy, like I said. We're lazy, lazy, lazy. So we have to learn to want this. Now, let's summarize where we are. Let's say that you're all these things that I've already gone through. You're rejoicing without regard to your changing circumstances. You are exhibiting the supernatural behavior that was described in James earlier. You're aware of God's presence and you trust him in what could be potentially dangerous situations. Your faith is in God, not in yourself. You are overcoming anxiety through thankful prayer. You're praying to God. When you hit the worry, you take it to God. You pray about it. And you've now been blessed with the peace of God. Then comes this guarding. That peace will guard you. Now, you're like me. You have what could be considered cycles that you go through. And what's described here is what I would regard as a virtuous cycle. You're doing the right thing. You're doing what God's word commands you to do. And so therefore, this peace of God within you grows. And you can greater exhibit all of these behaviors that Paul is commanding you to exhibit. But it can go the other way, the vicious cycle. You get depressed. You don't want to pray. And so you don't pray. So you get more depressed, further from God, drift deeper into sin. Now you begin to that vicious downward cycle. See, because if you're not progressing, you're not staying put. You're, you're regressing. God has that one path. You have to keep climbing. He doesn't just let you stay put. It's kind of like a game where if you're not moving, you're falling behind. You're losing. And that's the way God has made us. We must be pursuing him in order to advance in the Christian faith. God has decreed that those that go to him in thankful prayer will have the peace of God guard their hearts and minds. It's just that simple. You know, we, we think sometimes mechanistically, especially in this world, but, it's, but, but that's not how this happens. We know this. But God says, test me in this. Test me in this. Believe me. Have faith in me. It's not mechanistic. It's relational. It's not that God is the big grandpa in the sky that gives his kids gumsticks anytime they come and you know, bang on his knees. It's not like that. God is in a relationship with us, and he wants us to pursue him. You must pursue him to gain him. If you don't, then you won't. It's that simple. Now, I have some diagnostic questions here. Do you rejoice daily despite your circumstances? Do you behave in this gentle, self-sacrificial way that is described by James? Do you have faith that God will protect you when you take risks for him, when you're obedient to his will? Do you fight the temptation of worry through thankful prayer? Do you crave the supernatural peace of God that can be yours? All of these we want to be able to answer yes. Now, this message is kind of a two-parter. I get to be up here again in two weeks, and it will actually build on this message. So I have a homework assignment for you. I want you to think about these questions I want you to try to answer these questions in the affirmative in two weeks. Do you rejoice daily despite your circumstances? Do you behave in a self-sacrificial way? Do you have faith that God will protect you? Is your faith in God or is it in yourself? Do you fight the temptation of worry through thankful prayer? 
Do you crave the supernatural peace of God that can be yours? Now, this next part is kind of like an admission. Again, I'm like you. You're like me. In two minutes reflection, I came up with three things, three reasons why I believe I do not pursue God like I ought to. If I had 20 minutes reflection, I'd probably come up with 15 things as to why. But let me share these three. A closer walk with God would make me more uncomfortable. My relationship with God may not be as close as it could be, but to get closer would then be too close for comfort because then there are things that God would want me to do or there are things that God would want me to refrain from doing. And so I'm just trying to stay where I am. I'm marking time, to use a military term. That's where they're just standing and marching in place, not going forward, not going backwards, not stopping, just standing in place marching. Two, I am content with the secular sacred balance of my life. I don't value holiness enough to seek to grow more in it. I'm holding steady here, and that's good enough. In business, there's a phrase, better is the enemy of good enough. So see, it's kind of good enough. I'm happy where I am. I'm happy with my progress. Third one is, it is enough to know a deeper relationship is possible should I want it. And this is where there's always tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll be more holy. Tomorrow I'll be able to overcome that temptation that I always fall prey to. But today, well, today is not tomorrow, right? So I'm off scot-free today. Woo! I get to do what I want today because tomorrow it all starts. Tomorrow is when I'm starting that diet. Tomorrow is when I'm starting that prayer regimen. But not today. Can't today. Too busy today. These types of excuses that we all make to ourselves, um, we all do it. And yet they're all cheating us. They're all lying to us. As Christians, God has made you in order to be happy. You have to go through him. You know, that's the thing about being a Christian. It's really a, it's really a drag at times, you know, because these non-Christians, man, they could just be happy through a hundred things that don't involve God. But me, I have to go to God for everything. Why is that? It just seems like such a drag, such a drudgery at times. Why should all my happiness be beyond God, be through God? Why can't I just take simple pleasure in this cool toy I got or car I got or whatever it is? But no. God has to be involved in everything, and you should want that. And to the degree that you don't want that, to the degree that it really does, even if you don't recognize it, that's what's eating into it. Uh, A beautiful phrase of John Owen is, every sin is a fruit of being weary of God. Every sin. Every time you sin, you're saying, I want sin more than God. I've had enough of God today, thank you. I'm going to do with some less. The title of this message is Worry Warrior because I think it is a reflection of where most of us are. We're not prayer warriors. Now, some of us are. And if you are, praise God. I pray that you stay there. Yet for many of us, we're not there. For many of us, we allow worry to eat away at our joy, at this peace of God, which should be a reservoir within us. This peace of God that Paul experienced is what drove him to serve people. And if we are not driven to serve other people, then we're not where Paul wants us to be. 
We're not where God wants us to be. We should be at a point where we're driven to serve other people because that's what that reservoir forces us to do. It just pours out of us. We want to be useful on this earth. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. And that's true. It's so true for everyone, but it's ultimately very true for Christians. When you become a Christian, you are in for the whole thing. You can no longer be happy by what the world has to offer. And at times you'll be disappointed by that. But every one of those disappointments drives you to God. Every disappointment in your life should cause you to rejoice. Isn't that bizarre? Because every disappointment in your life should take you away from something that you are seeking ultimate joy in on this earth and drive you to God. And then when you focus on God, you're thinking, wow, my time on this earth will be so short. And then I'll have an eternity with God. And look at all these poor people who are lost. Look at They're all seeking happiness on this earth. And they're all lost. They're all deceived. And what was I doing? I was seeking happiness in that too. Ah, I'm so silly today. You know, that's what all these disappointments do. They, they point us to reality. The true reality that should be driving us is God, his word, prayer in the spirit. And we will be transformed. So pray until something happens. Pray until the peace of God fills your heart. That's what we should do to truly become prayer warriors. And like I said, in two weeks, we'll talk about it again. And until then, please try to memorize this text. It's very short. It's only four verses. It's very easy to memorize. And if you memorize it, you can meditate on it. That's the benefit of memorization. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, your word. And we pray that you would open our ears to hear it. Uh, I pray, Lord, that any error that I speak would just be washed away like so much uh, residue Uh, like the rain washed away this morning for us. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would conquer our willful, stubborn hearts, our willful, stubborn sins, that we would cast all of our cares upon you and that we would truly seek and acquire the peace that you offer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.